Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on our episode of the Teach Tape series, we finish up our walk down the field. Uh, we're going to jump ahead, though, to this, the goal line area first and move backwards here. So we did cover coming out, open field, and now we're into the scoring zone, red zone, goal line. Those areas of the field here where the drive finishes or on the defensive side of the ball, the drive Stops. So joining me as he does every week and has done a great job preparing this is the creator of Teach Tapes, Steve Hauser. Steve, I'm excited to, to finish our walk down the field today. Yeah, it'll be fun, Keith. And, you know, we're, we are starting at the goal line and then blending back um, goal line to score zone to red zone because all of those parameters for every team are going to be unique, right? Where's the yardage mark? Where does the defense actually change? But clearly the, the starkest contrast is going to be right up butted against the goal line there. And hey, is there a designer front or package that you want to get into as an offense to isolate? Or do you want to run your base offense and be in those bigger bodied hybrid sets to keep flowing just within your concept? So interesting to kind of peel it back from front to back. Yeah, definitely. And it is an area that does change from game to game, I, I think especially as you get towards the open field here with the parts we're going to talk about today. Certainly you're looking for the DNA of the defense, or if you're on the other side, the DNA of the offense, and and how do things change here? I do think in that regard, uh, the offense isn't necessarily going to change as much as they're looking for when does the mentality of the defense change? When do they start to send pressure or get into different packages, etc.? I know for me, in in putting together an offensive game plan, I always like to have the cover sheet of is just a one-pager for me that laid out the entire field and within each section, just overall notes of this is who they are in this area. And so that's the approach here today. We're really looking at this because at some point, as we do get closer to the goal line, it does change. But because we know in the goal line area, the one to five, we're going to get some specific things from everybody involved. Uh, we're going to start there today. So when I look at this area one to five, uh, there's a, a number of different approaches. I know the thing we wanted, especially as it got closer to the goal line in this area, there were things that we really carried 
every single week. It was our identity. Certainly, we would build wrinkles off of it, but there was always a starting point of how we were going to operate. And a big part of it for me, you know, we were, I'm thinking back to my BW days, we were a pistol team in the entire area of the field for the most part, except for zero to minus five and plus five to the goal line were areas where I did prefer that we would go under center for a number of, of different reasons. One, some of the ability to get quick hitters, right? Get the ball downhill, get up into the line of scrimmage to get those tough yards. And on the other end of it, when we were coming out, as I mentioned, like, you know, ball security and making sure a snap doesn't go into the end zone, et cetera. Didn't want to take the ball into the end zone if we didn't have to in that area. So for me, those two areas were the only part we'd get under center and we get into some bigger bodies. But I think as you look at the game today, there's a number of different approaches in this area, a number of different ways to line up, though I will say that the uh, concepts you might see again and again applied to those different ways of, of people using personnel and formations seem to be somewhat consistent here in the different uh, passes and runs. To kind of boil that down and you know put it in somebody else, put it in somebody else's words, Keith, like there's a Josh McDaniels clip that, that's on Teach Tapes there and you know, it's an old NFL films clip. This is like before even the Denver Bronco days, I think, when he's talking about being a play caller in these situational reps, you're the songwriter, the players are the artist. They've got to feel confident and put their personal touch on it because they're on stage. And there's a clip, you know, later on after that Rams Super Bowl, when he's come back from that head coaching experience, and he said players want to do what they know and what they're comfortable with in the biggest moments. So even Julian Edelman, there's a clip of him on the sideline like, hey, run the damn ball, give it to James White, and let's finish this thing. So I was talking to another guy who's, who's called plays, and you know, I kind of bounce some ideas off him before I get into these situational reps. To Do we want to run something that's a known situation where we as a coach can scheme it up? Hey, is it a 6-2, a bear, you're getting zero or, or seven across, like a cover seven look? Or do we want to run version of our base offense and make sure it's something the kids can play fast and it's within their normal flow. Because how much are you going to practice it? How often is that call sheet changing? I think it's an important point, Keith. You said these are concepts we are going to carry in these tight situations. Goal line, fourth and one, two-point plays. Because I was talking about it with my friend earlier. How many reps are you really getting on Wednesday before you get into your Thursday simulated practice script to feel confident when these are critical situations? especially in the overtime world now where the two-point play is going to make or break the game. So, again, from an organization, a reps, and just at the end of the day when the bullets are flying, where do you feel most confident? Yeah, I think that the point is to be made, and why do you do something like that? And it is for that cumulative effect of the reps. Uh, when you look at it and you lay out how much time you spend in each of the areas we've covered in this series we've put together you know the the far ends of the field you just don't get as many so if my reps on that for the most part are going to come in practice I want to maximize that and and as you said I'm not necessarily devoting a ton of periods to working on my goal line offense or, or my goal line defense even just to get some energy behind those segments when there is something that you know you look at Texas versus Kansas this week there is a, a crazy rep there I mean 
they're at the four yard line and they, and they got after those guys. And, and obviously there's some things that they're trying to make up for in those previous games against Kansas. But, you know, Texas came from the 10 yard line in a huddle and ran downhill to the line of scrimmage at the four got set in a jumbo set, 14 personnel with four defensive linemen, right? Double tight ends, bone backfield and uh, inverted bone, I should say, and ran double ISO. And Bijan Robinson went up there and he mashed it in. And you saw the emotion of that team coming downhill and be like, this is what we're going to do in this situation. It was really something that the whole team was rallying behind. Yeah, I like that part of it too. And it's something we, when we did get to this area, being a team that was primarily 11 personnel, some 12, but those guys who were our tight ends, uh, our guys who even when we would get into uh, some 21 stuff, they they were guys we converted. Uh, they were the bigger receivers. I know our fullbacks, two of them who, who really became pretty good were quarterbacks when they came to us, right? The the one had never blocked a soul in his life, but you know it was his chance to get on the field, and so uh, he he embraced it. He adapted to it. Now that being said, uh, their body types weren't necessarily those that you would look at and say, "Well, that's a you know Frank Uzcheck or somebody like that." I mean, he still in some ways looked like a quarterback. So we would get into situations down here that we would borrow from the defense, and what. I really liked it wasn't necessarily a benefit I thought of right away as we did it but you know the the team concept the buy-in like you know typically no one's paying attention to what we're doing in practice they're off working their only thing but now when we borrow some guys and we're working some of these periods where those guys are getting excited the defense is really now getting excited about what the offense is doing they got their guys in there too and it's you know everybody at that point, it's like an all-hands-on-deck situation to get the ball into the end zone. And those bigger body sets we're, we're talking about is using that tight end, fullback, whatever you want to call that sniffer gadget player, it's a chess piece. It doesn't need to be the piece, but it's accomplishing a goal to create a structure or to make sure that you've got the right opportunity for the players that you are trying to isolate. So, I mean, I'm watching the Big 12 now, and you know, I'm seeing some of these guys that were scout team, special teams players for me. And now they're in there on these critical downs and you're like number 49's on the field. He used to be an outside linebacker and now he's the third tight end. Well, they're putting him on the backside of this thing and he's a cutoff. But now by having that personnel on the field, we've got some different opportunities, right? So even just making sure you can manufacture something and obviously a defense is going to see a tendency in that, but you know, I've heard coordinators say good teams have tendencies because they're good at it, right? It allows them to do other things to focus on a specific area and keep it really tight. I know the one thing that comes up, not just on this series, but it seems to come up just a lot on the podcast in general with uh, some of our, our Mount Union contingent out there who have been guests is the players formation plays. And certainly that holds true as you look at this area. Yeah. And part of it too is making sure you can get the right guy, the ball, right. And I, I'm, still wearing my Iowa State sweatshirt here as we're filming it. And there's a reason Xavier Hutchinson has 100 catches on the season because he is hands down the best playmaker they have. And there's a reason that they'll find – had him in the backfield. They had him in an eye formation. They're running power, power read with him, right, to get him another touch. It doesn't matter how they're doing it. Well, you talk about some of these base rep opportunities to isolate one player. 
You saw it other ways in the Big 12. West Virginia is playing K-State, and K-State's doing a great job with that middle safety look that is in vogue of getting an unblocked player into the run fit. Well, they've got their best player at the slot tightened down. He's an outside receiver. Now he's running a, a five-step slant. We called it a nickel, and it's an RPO at the five-yard line in the score zone. Well, making sure that he pressed his depth still, understood his spacing on the field, but you can still run a base concept, but keep it tight with the formation. Now, OU against Oklahoma State, that was tough for me to watch. Those guys got after him in the first quarter. It still hung around late there, but OU is running an old-school air raid play of bulleting the back 10, and it's basically stick jet, but they had the boundary receiver running an option route to capture the eyes of the will and the quarterbacks running a draw when the mic bounces out with the motion. You want to talk technique and get back to teach tapes? The boundary guard overset the three technique. Literally just keep your hat on the inside V and OU's walking in for another touchdown. Well, now he crosses face. The will gets to go back because the ball wrecks to the B gap. And now it's a two-yard gain instead of a walk-in touchdown. So it doesn't need to be overly complicated. Understanding where the right guy to get the ball to, how do we make it really clear-cut so the guys can play fast? Now, when you get down into this area, there's certainly a case to be made for shifts, for motions. Uh, there was a, a crazy shift I learned from Stan Parrish, the late Stan Parrish, when he was at Ball State. He'd previously been at Michigan. But Stan uh, was out at spring ball one day, and, and Stan said, you got to see this one. This is our triple tap concept. And he, he just named it Bazooka. And Bazooka was, when you think of it this way, he, you started out in, in this formation. He was in a double tight wing right. They always ran this, this one way. They would run it down by the goal line. So it was double tight with a wing to the right eye formation, quarterback under center. And it started with a movement, I believe, of the guy who was lined up as fullback. He went all the way out to the right, became a receiver, uh, he tapped the the wing. The wing came all the way across and tapped the, the tight end on the left. That tight end got out of the formation. He runs across. He taps the, the, <laughs> the other guy at the tight end, and, uh, and he ends up at the slot. The tight end, the other tight end who was on the right, drops into the backfield as the fullback. So you end up in a, a twins right eye formation, right? All this movement happening one at a time. And uh, something we used at the time as a high school coach, we used it at the high school level. Uh, it definitely would open things up for us. And then the first time we used it, I can remember we were at Ohio Northern on the one-yard line. And, you know, naked eye watching from the stands, you'd be like, wow, that was a, a, a lot of uh, uh, motion for a yard. But what it did, if you look at it, it took a guy – and actually put him one gap removed out of his run fit and left nobody in the gap we wanted to run to because these guys are pointing all over. The motion, or the shifts, I should say, the movement is changing strength multiple times and uh, changing alignment, obviously, and moving different people around. And we got what we wanted out of it. I mean, that's a hard yard to gain, too. Yes, I know we did a lot, but I always say, hey, it's fun for the kids. The kids love doing it, right? I mean, it was something you look at it like, what the heck is going on? Um, but it was effective for us. And we had a package of plays off of that. 
that uh, ranged from quarterback sneak to a dive play, a power play, I think a front side pass, as well as a naked away as well. And, and they were all effective for us over the, you know, used it at the high school level, used it at the college level, used it for a number of years. Uh, it was effective for us in getting those tough yards. All of this stuff, Keith, and that, that's a great example of it, is easy for the offense, complicated for them. Right. We know why we're doing it, how it's easy to be communicated. Saw a great example of it this past weekend. TCU came out of a speed break huddle. And again, like you never think Sonny Dykes huddle, but I mean, you're getting out there and they're in a quads, like quads diamond set with the three guys on the line of scrimmage. And they're just getting out there, ripping that ball on a now screen and literally wedge charging forward. Right. Rather than get all these guys in a tight, tight set, they were an empty with quads to the boundary and they just ran a quarterback sneak, but with a receiver versus receivers and DBs. So are we still doing the same thing of being old school football and, you know, that, that play of, I think it was like Iowa and Stanford and, you know, all 22 players are within like six yards, three behind and three in front of the line of scrimmage. It's the same thing, but just, toying with your personnel and your people you know everyone's got their wing tight end that's moving back and forth trying to get that unblockable backside man but just the cadence structure you you see it on punt as well sometimes too of these nfl pps standing up and being like whoa 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 and then they're actually snapping it to give that body demonstration of man it's a bad look for us but as long as you get a little bit of clearance with the get off you're able to see that just again making sure these defenses can't have their full cleats in the ground just another open field example of something like that would be, you know, the old Gus Malzahn O-line still in their stance, quarterback sprints to the right, and they got the running back slow screen throwback out of it, right? You've seen that back in the day at Auburn. There's a good teach tapes rep here of an old NFL films, one of Case Keenum when he was with the LA Rams back in the Jeff Fisher days, Rob Boris, who is with Brian Dayball in, in Buffalo afterwards. He was the OC then. They called it Cheetah, and it was a mic'd up session of, the, the center pointing out the protection, the, the O-line still like got their hands on the hips and they're, st- they're static and they snap the ball. And now everybody's just chilling. Calais Campbell is like on a knee looking around at D-line and the ball's in play. So just little things. And I know we're talking about a, a score zone goal line situation, but just to give yourself a little bit of timing and advantage. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you, you mentioned the, the play uh, from – TCU the the quads look and that one I've seen used at multiple levels and I think it's you know I I think it's a brilliant way to utilize your personnel to gain an advantage and I mean it's again to run a quarterback sneak or a, a dive play inside with all those bodies stacked up it's tight but now you know you get a man over man situation and a lot of times you'll see it like I think I think they used to do this maybe with with Edelman um, the Patriots did, did this quite a bit where they start that outside in motion, snap the ball. I mean, he's one step and get it out there. And then that guy is stick your foot in the ground and get vertical. Now there is no shake and bake or anything like that. What you're counting on is, you know, if you space those guys out correctly, that that guy who's on the outside has to, to bubble over the top of somebody right, to be able to get to where his run fit is. And by that time, the receiver who caught the ball is heading downhill. It's a very tough play to make. It's taking, like you said, that quarterback sneak or that fullback dive and putting it on the perimeter where there's just not the people 
out there to, to cause a lot of congestion for that play to fail. Working our way back a little bit into that more scores on that, like that eight to 10 yard world. It's because things get so congested. There's not a lot of space. I mean, you take the passing element out of the game with all these guys. It's hard to now manufacture something when you jam it all in the box. But again, making sure that scramble rules are a huge benefit here. If you talk about how fast that ball can hit in some of these more isolated sets, Keith, of all the window dressing outside, you're getting one guy, the rock in the right situation. Well, now again, those bullets are flying real fast for the DBs because people are moving. There's a great rep of of Jim O'Neill when he was with the Raiders, you know, into practice setting and he's yelling plaster, 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 like whatever the zone call was before, the, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. You got to plaster on that guy, find color and match it in the back of the end zone. Right. So there's some really good reps of the Rams going through and repping that, whether it's Stafford running up or he gets flushed out over the top and the receivers and running backs are already in the end zone in a group setting and the coaches are harassing them and they got to find where the ball fl- flowed to. Hey, is there somebody setting up by the front pylon and they've got to settle into that zone and he's throwing them down on their back hip? Or is it somebody's already on the front pylon and they got to go to the back pylon? It's a great way to simulate it. There's another red zone score zone scramble. I know we've been trying to talk about this the whole season, Keith, of getting to this segment of the field. There's a John Gruden call out. He's got all the guys in different colored pennies, right? All these guys who are injured instead of like on Muscle Beach over there. He's got them spaced out for the quarterbacks, and Gruden's the one chasing him around the pocket and yelling red, yellow, green, or orange. And he's got a David Carr, I think it was like the Nate Peterman days, of finding the right player as the quarterback's moving around the pocket. So just some inventive ways to, to get that rep trained in these critical situations. Yeah, and when you look at this area, something for me I really liked down here, and I, I carried three plays, and again, it's something – we carried them every single week. We'd work them. Didn't mean we were always going to call them. But I liked in this 6-10 to 10 area, I had a, a, a empty pass, 3 by 2 empty. We would also we'd get back a little bit further, depending on what we were seeing. Same thing, 3 by 2 we'd have stick, slant with QB draw as a, as a kind of an RPO type of play right here. And then as we pushed out further, we had another one that combined essentially smash on the two receiver side with a, a switch for verticals uh, on the other, uh, utilized with a number of diff- different personnel, wouldn't always necessarily line up in it, um, but things that we liked because the setup of all those plays, you know, when I'm looking at what's in there, you need the quarterback, you know, if, if pressure is going to be a part of this, especially when you go to empty, the ball's got to come out quick. So we always had routes that he could go on, on essentially on either side of any of these concepts with a quick throw, uh, getting that ball out quick, as well as something that's you know going to hit and, and take it the rest of the way, take it for the distance. Because you know vertical space is diminishing here. It does get tougher. So these plays were specifically mm-hmm. designed for uh, these these areas of the field here. So – uh, that's one way to handle it. Again, looking at players' formation plays, you know, uh, certainly if if I could, I'd rather just line up with big personnel and jam it into the end zone. Um, but, you know, only some opponents that you face, and very few of them, 
will allow you to do that, right? There, there's going to be a hard fight to get to the end zone. So you have to sometimes look for how do we get it? How do we get it with the throw, right? Where When we hit these different areas. And so that's one approach to it is to have some of those things that you utilize. Again, I think you, uh, you make statements about this is what we are or what we do. Uh, I think taking away recognition time is important. So if you could dress those up, motion to them, shift to them, whatever it might be, absolutely, that's important as well. I think it would be silly not to talk about, because we're talking about a lot of details. Like this is awesome that we're not focusing on a game on Saturday, Keith. We can be in the mud of this. And if it, if it clicks something for a coach that's driving to and from work or they're going out for a run, like that's why we're here. So it'd be silly not to talk about the game management side when points are on the board in these situations. Hey, is a fourth down sequence important? Do I need to make sure I put this to a two score game? All like, do I have an extra down to manufacture this? Cause one of the hardest downs in football has got to be third and goal from the 10 yard line. Right. I, I mean, there's only so much you can do to control those backers from getting depth. I mean, there's a great rep of, of Texas versus Kansas and they're running um, again, like a, a China concept and the, the outside receiver is working more of a replace on the overhang instead of the with hitch. And they're running a sluggo off of that overhang. Well, the Mike's just dropping depth because he's got nothing but the sticks behind them and they're running a chip protection. There's nothing to control the mic. I mean, yeah, they got the double move, but the backers are so soft. It happened again in the Baylor game. It's an end of half situation. It's second and two, but you got drop eight and everybody is layering the field to make sure there's no cheap score before the, the half and they're conceding the field goal. So yeah, we can flood all these zones, but man, it's, it's hard to, to replicate under certain, certain situations. When you look at this area and again, thinking about it on the defensive side of the ball, um, it is, it's, you know, a lot of times been a bit of a drive. I mean, certainly someone could take a, a quick play, get down to this area and, uh, and score quickly but you know many times it is a situation where you're you're bleeding them to the end zone right you're you're doing everything you can to keep them out uh the more chances they're they're taking to score uh the more it becomes in your favor for something else to happen uh but certainly the stamina here on the finish can be an issue and there certainly has to be a focus here uh, on putting forth that effort to keep them out of the end zone Obviously, the, the point of this part of the field is bend but don't break, right? A field goal is success. Four points of score differential here is huge. Matt Patricia, first team meeting they have of the team um, coming out of COVID was, hey, four-point plays, right? Third downs in the red area. How do we make sure we can get off the field and stop that substantial swing of the score differential? Well, when you get into these areas, man, there's, we've talked about the condensed space these safeties are able to plug up more on that second level. What does that do? Makes the push crack from the single receiver harder, right? That unblockable safety where you're running plays into a bad run fit, it's harder not to do that, right? Also the backside backer, if he's square and he can get over the top and be that fitter as the play cuts back, God, it's so much better. But if he falls back on the wrong side of the block on outside zone or man, he gets sealed by a great backside effort, Sometimes it's just because guys are dragging and it's been a long drive. So those plays can look really elite or really bad. And I think it's a great thing to think about of where does your character shine through as a defense on a team? You know, we always talked about the effort of the backside corner on a long run play. Um, how good is your field goal block team right after a long score? Are they just kind of letting it hang 
or are they getting after it and doing their job? So you want to talk about an attitude and effort play. I think you'll see that in some of these critical defensive situations of just showing up because um, it's either a boom or a bust play. So now we move out into that area where it gets to be defined by the defense and where they might change. How do things start to become different for them? When I'm breaking down a game and, and looking at what we're going to do in this area, a lot is dictated by that. Now, they're probably also looking at, well, what's your kicker's range, right? They're, they're, they've got a formula, too, for figuring out when might we change, where's the breaks going to be for us. So in looking at this area here, your thoughts on, one, how do we define it? Well, and, and everyone's got their, their master Excel spreadsheet of, you know, the GAs and support staff going through and having your things where you start to break down the, the numbers count of it all. Um, I think it's a good point to bring up. We talked about the, the two-point plays and fourth and shorts and, you know, goal lines. It's great to have that lead analyst. We were fortunate enough to have a guy like Bob Stitt was our lead offensive analyst, kind of former big-time ball coach that was in the back of the room. He would do that stuff earlier in the week. So, when the offensive coordinator is Tuesday night and you've already had practice and you're working through the stuff for Wednesday, he's already got a jump start, And it's something that's within the concept of what we do. And it's also particular to the game plan. So you're not starting fresh late in the evening on Tuesday. Now, when we get into the red zone area, it's got to be complementary to what you're doing in the open field. Because we talked about it earlier, Keith, there's only so many reps to go around. I think of it from my special teams background. What's the counter that we've been setting up? right? It's boundary double three, boundary double three. Well, now we're going to pull the boundary tackle underneath those wall blocks, take the outside shoulder leverage, and now bring the back end with it. And we've got three pullers to the field as we've been drumming them into the boundary. Well, Baylor has some excellent stuff. I mean, I've really enjoyed watching them, Ole Miss, Tennessee, but they live what they preach, right? So Baylor's going to run the outside zone. They're going to have the jet sweeps. They got some quarterback run game of Man, maybe I'm just behind the times, but they're riding the jet sweep and they've got a pin and pull where the guard is reversing back out, like literally baseball turning. And now the quarterback's reading it backside with a pin pull scheme. I mean, I thought it was some great stuff of complimenting what they do out of that pistol and short yardage, midline play action shots. It just, it's definitely tied in with your open field because you got to manage those reps and that overlap because how many are you really getting? but also making sure the players are confident, like we talked about in the McDaniels conversation earlier. I think the other area, uh, as, as we just extended out a little bit farther here, where you get into your four-down territory, and I thought something I learned, man, a, a long time ago. We got it from Andrew Coverdale, who I think he's a 13-time state champion offensive coordinator. He was at... Trinity in Louisville, and he's now at St. X in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he talked about, uh, you know, his philosophy of one of these downs, when you hit this area, one of these downs is a shot down. And, and going back to what we said before, vertical space is disappearing. If we could get this or a big portion of it on a throw down the field, you know, that's the approach to take. And then everything else he just treats as – you know, uh, the the down it might be. So he's thinking a first down call, second down call. Maybe that second down is the shot. Then the down after is still is, he's thinking second down, uh, third down, et cetera, right? But the, the point being that there's a strategy that goes into that too. It always doesn't have to be, when we get into that area, we'll take a shot right away. 
you know, you could set it up, you know, with with a sequence there and thinking about how you want to handle it. But I think it's, you know, you get into this area here where we talked about the difference between what's happening on a first and second down in the open field versus something here. I think every call becomes very strategic uh, because, you know, there's a, a number of different things you have to adjust for. And I think it's important, you know, carrying this to the practice portion is that you get enough work in this area. I think it starts in camp and, and continues the whole year that you place the ball co closer and closer so your players know how some of those base concepts adjust. What happens when you run out of vertical space? I mean, you're not just going to run through the back of the end zone. So what's their rule as they hit the end line? Where do they go? Are they breaking in? Are they breaking out? Are they coming back? How do they handle those types of things when they get into those areas, especially as they they hit some of that scramble that you mentioned before. So again, I think it's about being strategic with every call and understanding what you're doing on a particular down or what you're setting up potentially on a down or two downs from now. And Keith, I love that you brought up that kind of no man's land of, hey, the offense and special teams blend to this because that is, that is a real place and it's something that people aren't comfortable with because it is like, man, we could be, we could take a sack and now we got a pooch punt, right? Are we, did we get enough yardage that we're going to go for it on fourth and two? And, you know, we were fortunate to have um, the CAI books. If you watch on TV, you're always going to see these guys behind the head coach with that white binder. Um, Rob Ash and his crew do a great job there. If that's something um, your team works with, if not, just making sure you can manage um, your field goal kicker and have communication with the OC ahead of time of literally walking the field. Hey, we're going this direction coming out of warm-ups, hey, where's my target? What's my distance from the field position? The OC don't give a damn about how long the kick is. What yard line do I need to be at, right? What hash is better to center the ball at the end of the game? This is all information that, from a communication standpoint, hey, are we sequencing a third down into a go-for-it fourth? What's our range going this direction? You saw the Patriots-Jets game. That was a huge factor. And who had the win in the fourth quarter? I think it was the Michigan-Illinois game was a huge factor. Illinois had a 30-yard punt that basically got blocked out of the clouds by the wind. It's a 30-mile-an-hour wind. Michigan had it at its back for a game-winning field goal, and it looked like a chip shot. Two totally different situations based on communication and game plan. Yeah, I think there's, there's an argument to be made for having some of these meetings instead of you know, sitting around the table is to get them out on the field, to actually walk the field with your staff, or maybe it's a walkthrough with your team. But you want that understanding of here's how we're going to operate in these situations. And, and I say that because for me, you know, one of my procedures pregame uh, as, as the uh, play caller, as the offensive coordinator, is they, the players have free time. We're not in our warm-ups yet. But I'd go up to the press box. I'd, I'd get my call sheet set up. I'd check the area, whatever. And then I would start visualizing that walk down the field. And, and especially uh, – I mean, I love and would have in every game plan some trick plays. I think it's an important part of the offense. But where the heck are you going to call those and, and what areas of the field? Even as important as uh, what hash, what direction, there's there's certain trick plays that I just wanted certain guys aligned on my sideline. It might be that guy who, you know, I, I have thrown the double pass that I wanted, I want him there. Potentially, you know, he's a, a guy who I popped into the game who's not typically out there. I certainly don't want him showing up next to their sideline and somebody saying, hey, 
this guy never plays. What's he doing over here, right? So <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, jersey, just yeah. stuff like that that helps you visualize, like, when am I going to call this play in what situation? And it really did help me, um, from that standpoint, trigger those thought processes, right? As, as the ball's moving down the field, I mean, you don't have time to look at notes and say, oh, yeah, when we hit here, this is what I'm doing. Like, you know, just getting in that into your thought process. I think even more, like, Hey, the more eyeballs, the, the the more people you have thinking about that, the better. It just be, provides a fail safe. So, you know, thinking about making that part of how you teach the game, whether that's just with your staff and walking the field and talking it through, and you know, letting the head coach, especially if if you're uh, you are a CAI guy or analytics guy, going through what he's looking for in those different areas, and here's what our approach is going to be in this particular game, whether that's on the book or not. So. A lot to be said about the preparation for that, and and I would suggest that, especially early on, a new staff. You know, I know we're far past that now as we're into uh, November here, uh, getting into late November. But you know, think about that again as it rolls around and and you hit an install. Is how are we going to approach these areas? How are we going to teach these situations? I think that's a, some good methodology and how to accomplish it. And Keith, I'm, I'm sitting here smiling because me and you are lucky enough to have this conversation on a, a slow Tuesday afternoon where we're not in the firestorm, right? We're not in high school playoffs or end of season, big time rivalry games that coaches are bleary eyed right now, man. And, and we've both done it. We're not there right now, but I can still appreciate and respect it. And these are things that when the, when things are calm and you can take a breath and see it clear, it, it is about processes and procedures. But at the end of the day, play fast, be confident. And the work that you put in doesn't have to be busy work and making sure that it's something that when things are hard and fast, you can be really confident. So I, again, we're getting towards Thanksgiving. I feel really thankful to have this time and talk through this forum, Keith. So thank you for opening it up to me and, you know, the walk down the field, the, you know, the blueprint that we did with Brandon Staley, it's been a really fun experience. And I think we'll wrap it up more on the next episode of what's to come. And I'm excited about that as well, but man, just keep playing ball and keep getting better. Absolutely. And Steve, as always, I'm thankful for you and the time you've put into it. I think this has been a great series on the podcast and certainly adds a lot of value to coaches. I can't emphasize enough to the coaches out there. If you haven't had time to check out, at teach tapes during the season you're going to want to head over to that account and follow what goes on there you know steve i I can say this you put me down rabbit holes every single day (laughs) as as i start to peek at some of the things that you tweet out i I have yours on alert and uh i mean it'll just send me down you know looking at a, a certain hashtag that you put together and all the different things there so a tremendous resource in uh, a very digestible format uh just a minute or or two at a time there, but a lot to be learned from it. And Keith, we're, we're all here to help each other. None of it's my idea. It's all people that have figured it out from somebody else and just hoping it helps different people. So thanks again, guys.